Hey, how's it going? Assalamu alaikum, peace. It's Imran here. It's been about, what, six months since we last spoke. Um, a lot can happen in six months, and a lot has happened in six months. I'm just trying to recall the highlights. Uh, one of the major things for me is um, my kids, are, I guess they're no longer kids. When, when do your kids stop being kids? Uh, I definitely don't want to be one of those parents that treats their kids the same throughout their life. I do think you need to adjust the nature of your relationship. But essentially, they've both uh, gone to university. Yeah, that, that's happened quickly. I mean, it's happened slowly, but also quickly. Parents will know what I mean. I moved to a particular part of the UK in order to be closer to them during their formative years so that I could help with their upbringing, uh, so that myself and my ex-wife could kind of co-parent effectively. And that was about eight years ago. And now they've, they've gone. They've gone to do their own thing. And I couldn't be prouder. I really couldn't be prouder. But if you think about it, uh, it's also a bit of a, a bit of a life-changing event because this is the first time in, I guess, 20 years that the spotlight has moved from them back to me. And I guess I was aware that that was happening. It wasn't that, you know, I'd invested all this time into the upbringing of my kids and then all of a sudden things have changed and I'm left with this void and bereft. No, I, obviously I was, I was aware that it was going to happen. But even when you're aware and prepared, you're not really fully prepared. And so now it's a case of, right, what next? You know, um, and that's that's an interesting question to contemplate and to act on. Um, but anyway, that's that's just a little bit of background. Uh, right. Where were we? Where were we? We were uh, talking about Dr. Gabor Mate's literature, weren't we? And his kind of perspective on, I guess, uh, our behavior, our childhood experiences and how they impact our life. And uh, I'm interested in this subject because I think it's important for all of us essentially to better understand ourselves. If we better understand ourselves, we are more likely to make better decisions about our lives. And by better decisions, I mean how we live, who we decide to live with, um, and what kind of life we want. So in this episode, we're going to talk to Will Daniel Bramman. So he is a therapist, he's a coach, he's a trainer in the field of personal and organizational development. He has a private therapy practice in London and a coaching practice that has had him work internationally. He's also appeared on television. Um, he's currently studying a really interesting PhD, which is titled From the Plantation to the Playground, and looking at essentially the transfer of trauma between generations and how it presents itself in modern society, um, which I think is going to be an incredible piece of work. Um, he's also interested in looking at the barriers for people of color entering the psychotherapy profession, both as practitioners but also as as clients. So so he's a busy chap and he kindly offered me um, uh, an hour, an hour and a half of his time and we had a really engaging discussion. Uh, Will is 
part Caribbean, part English and part Welsh, which is a combination that I've never come across before uh, and obviously one that has informed his worldview and his life experience. And Will Kindly is very open about that and shares information about it. In terms of the substance of what we spoke about, um, we start off talking about uh, our childhood. Yes, I know, I know, we always talk about our childhood when it comes to this uh, topic of trauma. But essentially, it's an established fact now that what happens to us in early life dictates a large amount of what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about, about ourselves then translates into the lives that we lead. So if we work backwards, understanding what happens to us and what was instilled in us in our childhood is kind of critical in understanding who we have become and potentially where we are going and maybe how we can move in a different direction. Totally, totally, totally fascinating discussion. One that I walked away from thinking yeah, I've learned something new. And that's all I'm hoping for with these episodes, that even if it's just one thing that you can take away that helps you to move forwards in your life in a positive direction, then that's enough. Okay, so you've got a good idea as to what you're about to listen to. If you do have any feedback, please do get back to me at divorcemuslimdad at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at M-O-I-A-Z-A-M. This is Season 2, Episode 8, Rewriting the Script. See, my old man's got a problem. He's dealing with a bottle, that's the way it is. He says his body's too old for working. His body's too young to look like his. My mama went off and left him. She wanted more from life than he could give. I said, somebody's got to take care of him. So I quit school, and that's what I did. Enough so we can fly away. You gotta make a decision. Leave tonight or live and die this way. So I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. Speed so fast, it felt like I was drunk. City lights day out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I, I had a feeling that I belonged. So having read uh, Dr. Mate's uh, book about addiction, he seems to be alluding to the idea that uh, the convention in society is to consider trauma to be at an extreme. So whenever we think about uh, addiction or trauma, we think about those people who are on hard drugs, um, that are alcoholics, um, etc. But actually, he says that it's likely that many of us engage in activities which could be considered uh, addictions. And his argument is that these addictions stem from uh, an attempt to overcome some kind of pain. Um, and that pain most likely would have been induced in our formative 
years. So what's your perspective on this? Is it the case that most of us are walking around and are engaging in particular behaviours which are not healthy? Um, there's so many layers to that question. So I, I don't know if you heard about adverse childhood experiences. Adverse uh, childhood experiences, ACE, the study in the States, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, the ACEs. So it was a study with CDC, which is Center, Center for Disease Control. And what the study did was find links between childhood trauma and then long-term health behavior and social consequences. Like what, ha what happens to us later on in life. Um, and I, I only came across the ACEs about five or six years ago and it made lots of sense to me. It, it gave me lots of answers. Um, I say answers, but it gave me a framework for me to think about my own life and my own experience because I'd been through quite a lot of the ACEs and then the, 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 the risk outcomes I identified with quite a lot of those as well. So what they came up with three types of ACEs. So there's abuse, neglect and household dysfunction. Um, and the abuse would be physical, emotional and sexual. And then neglect would be physical and emotional. And then household dysfunction would be someone in the household having a mental illness, someone in the household gone to prison, um, mother treated violently or father treated violently. So domestic violence, basically. Um, someone in the family on drugs like substance abuse and mum and dad separated or divorced or parents separated and or divorced so they they were the 10 um main aces in the original study in 1998 and then what they found was people who had four or more of those aces would have adverse childhood experiences uh, were were more likely to have um let's say kind of dysfunctional adult behavior so 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 not doing any exercise so being unwell by not doing exercise smoking drinking taking drugs themselves missing work um severe obesity developing diabetes depression um attempted suicide sexually transmitted um, infections heart disease cancer stroke, COPD and broken bones. And what I noticed was, as well as having lots of the ACEs, I'd been through a lot of the risk outcomes, a lot of the adult risk outcomes through my life. Um, so that had me look into this, this study and this, this, this model to look at trauma. And, and, I, and I call it a model because Every, everything that I, whenever I teach, for example, and I'm teaching a piece of theory, I teach it with a lot of passion and people think that I believe in it, but it's not that I believe in it. It's just that it's a useful model to use to look at, you know, making sense of one's experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of controversial things, or not controversial things. There didn't seem to be lots of areas of agreement when it comes to um the impact of of childhood trauma but yeah. something that does crop up yeah as as an area of agreement is is ace you know, yeah. is, is 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 the study and it seems to be the basis upon which 
a lot of practitioners from whatever perspective they come from are able to refer to it as at least a starting point yeah. in order to further explore what, what go, what's going on with somebody. I love that. I love that you said it's a starting point because there is another study that changes the E. So instead of adverse childhood experiences, it says adverse childhood exposure. So exposed to, which I think is really interesting because for me in terms of how I work with people is it's not necessarily about the experience that, or the thing that happened, but it's the perception that the child made of it. So for example, um, you know, if, if mum and dad are separated and dad left, it's the child unconsciously you know there's so many lenses we could look through i mean I'm, I'm my master's is in transactional analysis psychotherapy so if we're looking at ta then you know the script is written between the ages of naught and seven so the child is the one who writes the belief in themselves that either they're unwanted or they're unlovable or if you know if mum and dad were arguing about something that happened with the child over the kid so to speak and then they split then the child is it's my fault i'm to blame and once in, in terms of the work it's looking at okay once the child the adult that i'm working with but it's the child that made the decision realizes that actually they're the ones who said that they're unlovable they're the ones who said they're bad or they're the ones who said they don't belong then they start to move towards cure because they can rewrite their script because they wrote the script in the first place. So the experiences happen or the exposure to situations and, and circumstances happen, but it's the child's perception of it that fundamentally turns it into whether it's trauma or not. So <clears throat> essentially this kind of slight difference between the word exposure and uh, experience is quite significant because yeah. in your view, it, it enables an individual, it empowers an individual to kind of take control of, of their beliefs. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So if, if I was to kind of put the lens of TA on this for a moment. So Eric Byrne, who developed transactional analysis theory in the 1960s, and lots of other humanist um, psychotherapy, psychology schools believe that our script, so the, 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 the script of our lives, how our lives will pan out, is written between the age of naught and seven. And we constantly find ways to reinforce our script. But it's always unconscious. We don't know that we're doing it. And people come into um, therapy work with me because they want to stop doing something that keeps seems to be happening again and again and again and again. And what's happening is they are, they are reinforcing their script, they're reliving their script, they're recreating their script. And the script is really powerful. So if I have a script belief that I wrote when I was you know, five that I don't belong, so, and this is actually true for me because we, we moved around a lot when I was a kid, I went to five different primary schools. So there was a sense of not belonging. Yeah, I, I didn't fit in in lots of places. So I ended up as a teenager and as an adult joining lots of groups. Now, I didn't know when I was joining those groups. So I joined cadets, I joined scouts, I joined Eastleigh Youth Club, Mayflower Youth Club, Shipman Youth Club. I literally was 
you know, youth clubs all over the place. I didn't know that I was joining them because I didn't belong. But, and it doesn't mean that everybody who joins lots of um, youth clubs has a belief that they don't belong. But how you can start to determine or ascertain whether it's coming from a script belief is if you don't feel satisfied. So, so I, I would go on to the next thing, go on to the next thing, go on to the next thing. And all I'm doing all the time is reinforcing the script belief of not belonging somewhere. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I, actually, I can I can very much relate to that. Mm. Um, I always, I mean, you, you might remember in the 1980s um, on a Saturday afternoon, there was a there was a television show about a little dog uh, called The Littlest Hobo. Mm. Do you remember? Do you remember? No, that? no, I don't. No. Okay, so The Littlest Hobo, the theme song, absolutely sticks in my mind, mm. um, and the lyrics are essentially. Um, there's a voice that keeps on calling me down the road. That's where I'll always be. Mm. Every stop I make, I make a new friend. I can't stay for long. Just turn around and I'm gone again. Mm. Right. Um, and I have always related to this because like you, this sense of where is home. Yeah. Right. Um, it's never been a question that has, uh, I've satisfactorily answered. Mm. And I have my own theories as to where that, where that stems from. But it's interesting that you say that in, in my mind, or, or perhaps in, in your mind, the, uh, the idea is that, well, I don't belong. Uh, that's therefore I feel like this, as opposed to saying, well, because I feel I don't belong, I reinforce that belief through my behavior. The, the the youth clubs was me physically moving around in places so that was one sense of i don't belong but i also i'm you know i'm i'm dual heritage i'm part caribbean part english part welsh more caribbean than english and welsh i hasten to add um and growing up in the 60s and 70s as a mixed race kid as i was then I didn't belong in the black community. I didn't belong in the white community. Well, I didn't feel I belonged in the black community. I didn't feel I belonged in the white community. So I didn't know where I belonged. So that would have been con a contributing factor as well. So it, it, it's not as simple as one thing happens to you and then, you know, that determines the rest of your life. It's, it's, it's the, the whole environment of what's going on when you're growing up. And I suppose the aces are good to kind of come back to, to, to look at, well, these are ones that have been studied, but there, there are lots more. There are lots more. This idea of um, transactional analysis, is that a TA? Yeah. That's what TA is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, an idea formed in the 1960s about essentially what you term the script, or yeah. what is termed the script is, is written between the, the ages of zero and seven. Now, a script, that's a very interesting word because mm. it, it makes it sound like something very defined and unchangeable. Is that intentional or, or is that is that just me interpreting that word? Love it. Lovely, lovely. So it's it's defined and rather than unchangeable, it's defined and it won't change until you consciously consciously do something to change it. So if it's out of awareness, it will stay unchanged, but it's not unchangeable. Otherwise we wouldn't have TA psychotherapists, but it's definitely, people don't know that they can change their script. A lot of people will live their life as per their script. And you can have winning scripts as well, by the way, um, and not even know that there's a possibility for change. 
you know people say that's just the way it is that's just the way i am that's just the way the world is um or that's just the way other people are but actually none of that's fundamentally true that's how they've perceived themselves other people and the world so they can do work on changing that should they want to one of the ideas that uh, dr marty uh, challenges uh, is kind of the the intellectual orthodoxy around uh, the role of genetics um, in our lives and i get i understand where he's coming from in that if you ask you know the average person about you know about genetics most people have an idea as to what they are and they will have quite a strong opinion about the role that genetics play in our lives and what dr mate essentially does is that he's very much of the idea that yes you know genetics play a role in our lives but it's nowhere near as significant as most people believe because the environmental factors um uh, are, are much stronger in determining um in determining our lives and actually the environmental factors can have uh, an impact on our genetic makeup even prior to actually being born um, as well so when it comes to these kind of i guess fixed beliefs that certain people like you said there they believe they are just the way they are and they've been told that well that's something that runs in the fact for example like depression right you constantly hear or not constantly a lot of the time you hear somebody saying well my mother was depressed or my grandmother was depressed therefore it runs in the family right how what's your perspective on this kind of thinking the environmental impact on jet on the genes is epigenetics you've got transgenerational genetics so transgenerational trauma trauma that's passed down through the generations and then you've got environmental trauma and that's things that can happen that will then affect how the person is and how the person may potentially pass those um those traumas down through to the next generations um when i think about transgenerational trauma so i don't know if you know i'm starting a phd in a in a couple of months so the title or the titles are um, from the plantation to the playground so i'm looking at decolonizing psychotherapy i'm looking at what are the barriers to people of color entering the therapy profession both as practitioners and as clients i'm looking at the impact of transgenerational trauma on people today and where all that trauma is going and my hypothesis is that it's going into the prisons and the mental health institutions rather than into the therapy rooms gosh that's i mean that's that's going to be an incredible piece of work and there's so many different strands of it as you were describing in there that i was thinking about on a personal level i mm. mean in terms of transgenerational trauma and uh you know thinking about the colonial period i mean my half of my family was impacted by the partition mm. of india mm. and i recently watched the two-part documentary on channel four yeah. about partition which uh is the first colorized version um of of that footage and obviously it's, it's a deeply personal story and you know when i think about my father's family in bihar in, in northern india which is still currently northern india but he you know the family was muslim so that was part of 
Hindu India. So they basically had to cross the border into what was then East Pakistan, which then became Bangladesh. So they went along that migration. And, you know, it's, it's basically the, the biggest migration, um, I think, in human history. I think it's like 20, 30 million people were heading, uh, heading in different directions at mm. the same time. And I, it's estimated that between one and three million people uh, died during, in one year, mm. died during, during this period. And my family was, was one of those. And I, and I believe that we lost family members, you know, through intercommunal violence um, through, through that period. And when I think about this sense of dislocation or this sense of lacking a home or, or belonging, I mm. sometimes think about that. So kind of bringing it back to transgenerational oh, wow. trauma, yeah. Yeah. you know, I think about, okay, is it the case that I, I, I'm a second generation immigrant in this country and kind of am torn between kind of uh, my, my, my parents' background and being born and raised in London in this country and therefore you know, I don't have a home like you, like you, mm. you know, I don't have like a very clear area. Society doesn't seem to want to embrace me a hundred percent. Therefore I'm, you know, I'm having to search for a meaning as to why I'm feeling like this. And therefore, yes, of course, half my family, you know, they, they left India and now they didn't just go to East Pakistan. They've ended up in Toronto. They've ended up in the UK. They've ended up in California and hence, perhaps something has been passed down to me, mm. you know, in terms of how I feel. When you hear that kind of story, is it, is it possible that that could be a, tra you know, a, a, a generational trauma being passed down? 100%, 100%. And, and what I love about everything that you've just said was it was filled with questioning and consideration as opposed to this is the reason why, or that is the reason why, or this is what happened. And so I am because of, um, I, what I found through desperately trying to find answers for the first, you know, 20 years of my adult life is that there's no, there's no healing and there's no, um, comfort in the answers because I'll find an answer somewhere. And then that will just open up another question. So where I found healing from is, is, is being in the question, being in the consideration and say, saying things to myself like, okay, so that, that may be because of that. And if that's because of that, so then where else can I explore as opposed to, you know, that's why I'm this way. Do, do you get the difference? There's a difference between saying this because, like, as I think you've alluded to in, in, in terms of what Gabon Mate talks about, you know, everybody, every single individual will experience the same thing in a different way. So it's not a mm. case of if this happens to you, you will be traumatized. And also, you, 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 you avoid things like someone else saying, OK, well, my family went through the partition, so I get exactly where you're coming from. Actually, they don't because their family would have experienced it completely different. So staying in the question, staying in the inquiry, thinking, oh, wow, that, that could be something that's impacted me. So when I talk about script with people, an analogy I like to use is just to show how powerful that kind of um, 
unconscious scripting is. So whether it be transgenerational, whether it be epigenetics, um, whether it be something that happens between the ages of naught and seven, all of that comes together for us to play out who we are in life, okay? Um, and I use the example of going to see like a blockbuster Tom Cruise type movie. And so, well, I'll say it to you, Imran, actually, if you and I were going to the cinema together, okay, and we were going to watch the latest Tom Cruise, you know, Mission Impossible 27 or whatever it would be, okay? So we're about to pay our 15 pounds and we're standing at the door. If I said to you, do you think Tom Cruise is going to die in this movie? What would you say? No. Yeah. And if I said to you, do you think the baddie is more than likely going to die in this movie? What would you say? I mean, I would say yes. Yeah. Although, although <laughs> uh, not to take the seriousness of your of your scenario here, but in the, in the modern day, they probably wouldn't kill him off. They'd probably... <laughs> Yeah, something probably bad send him off to a remote to island. Okay, and <laughs> yes. and if I say to you, or ask you the question, do you think that whatever needs to be saved by the end of the movie is going to be saved, whether it's the world, whether it's an individual, whether it's a, a secret, whether it's a, do you think it's going to be saved by the end of the movie? What would you say? Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's happy ending. Happy ending. Uh, but we'll still pay our fifteen pounds to go in. Okay, and the reason, the reason behind that is. There's something inside us that trusts that the script writer is going to have us on the edge of our seats. We are going to be, when Tom Cruise is hanging off of the helicopter, we are going to be wondering, is he going to fall off? Even though somewhere in our mind, we know he's not. Hmm. But while we're in the moment, we're thinking this could be different. And that's, 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 that's how powerful script is, because we are our own script writers. So we'll go into a new situation thinking this is going to be different, but our script is actually going to have it play out exactly as it's designed from the ages of naught to seven or from mm. transgenerational or from epigenetics. It's already programmed. And when you can become aware of that, you can then do something with it as opposed to think, oh, that's it. That's the answer. Now I know. It's like, no, no. So, so now what? If that's my script, if that's what I learned, if that's what I took on from my, my, my environment, my surroundings, my ancestry, what, what do I do now? What can I do now? What's available to me? So a lot of the language I'm getting from you is, is that of uh, essentially people being empowered and to believe yeah. that they have the possibility of impacting their own lives and that they are not victims. Uh, mm. essentially um, yeah. that's not to say they haven't been victimized in their lives but ultimately when it comes to changing the script that they pretend they, they do have uh, they do have the possibility of doing that mm. but you, you mentioned something there which was interesting which is the word aware yeah right what stops somebody becoming aware of of the possibility of change or aware even that they are that they need to make, not they need to, but they could make a change. Wow, that's a that's a that's a brilliant question. By the way, can you can you be my marketing person because you, you, summed, <laughs> you, you summed up how I approach empowerment really nicely there. <laughs> so yes, I do believe that everybody has has possibility and has choice. So um, sorry, ask the question again. Ask the same question again. Um, 
yeah, the, the, this idea of awareness. Yes. Uh, what stops people? So, well, you know, I'm I'm just thinking about you know people in my life. Um, actually, if we go back to my my divorce, um, mm. you know, there was a period, I think, a very short time after where. For whatever reason, and I, I don't take credit for this. It's just I'm just laying it out as a fact. I thought that, OK, there are things that you are responsible for within this marriage, which you do not want to take into a future relationship. Right. You're going to need a period to, you know, for want mm. of a better word, heal, you yep. know, um, yep. change, mm. purge. Right. And I didn't know how long that period was going to take and I knew it was never going to be a finite point I just thought that there's a point at which I become healthy enough to be able to consider getting involved with somebody else not perfect but just mm. healthy enough right yep. but in order to start that journey I needed to have accepted yeah I needed to have accepted been become aware and then accepted that that change needed to have happened if I wanted to live a more contented future. Now, the question I have in my mind is what stops somebody firstly becoming aware and secondly, accepting that they they want to go down this journey in order to live a more contented future? Well, I, I think it's a real existential question that you're asking because um, you talked about almost like moving towards a better future, whereas people who are not aware can consider themselves even though they may not even know it they may be observed as blissfully unaware so i think there's a and once again i don't want to come from an answer this is going to come from my experience and my experience of being with people um i think that people are people are unaware that they are that they have choices available to them i guess they're unaware and then if their script is so strong they they are not able to see that you know what there's something on the other side so i'll, I'll give you an example of something that happened kind of recently to me a, a member of my family 15 year old going through what I would consider and having been through what I would consider quite a lot of trauma. Um, mm. Now, you know, I'm, I'm putting this out there and <laughs> my, my, the mother of my nephew um, might say something different to what I'm saying now, but I think he's been through trauma and I was taking him away on holiday and there was a mix up over things that were happening. And he got really upset with me. He was calling me all the names under the sun. And, and I think any other member of my family would have said, you know, that's out of order. You can't do that. You can't say that. And all I said to um, my nephew was, listen, I'm aware that you didn't take your medication today because he's got ADHD. And I'm aware that you don't normally speak to me in this way. So when you're ready to talk to me, I'll be there. So... And that's kind of leads into what a, a trauma-informed approach is. I didn't take any of what he said personally. Now, there are there are going to be limits, of course. But um, when I said to him, what's going on with you? You know, we should talk. He said, I don't know. So he's not aware at the moment. He's not aware 
of what he's doing, how he's acting in life, how he's impacting my sister, how he's impacting my family. Um, he's not aware. And I've told him that I'd be happy to start talking him through what might be going on for him. And when he gets them tools of what might be going on for him, he can then start to have some choices as to what he's going to do about it. So I think people stay blissfully unaware because they just, they just, they just want to, for want of a better expression, a bit cliche, say live a, live a regular life, live a normal life. Uh, apparently, so don't quote me on these figures, but there's only about 30% of the whole planet that are aware of the fact that they are a human being kind of existing on this planet. The other 70% are just going through their day-to-day -day lives, not knowing that actually you're a being that's kind of incarnated and you're doing stuff while you're here and there's something else other than, and whether that be, you know, your God, your universe, your spirit, your whatever it may be, um, people aren't aware of that. So yeah, the, awareness is a really big topic. We could do, we could, we could chat for a whole kind of hour on on just what awareness is, really. Yeah, I, I get the the idea of it being kind of quite a quite a deep and existential uh, question. I guess, and I get it. This this does come down to a personal belief that mm. you know, in every human being, there is there is a desire to, um, I guess, spiritually progress. Do you think so? I I think deep down. Deep down at the core of any individual, there but, is... But do they know that? Called... Do they know that? I'll, I'll tell you what it is from an Islamic perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, within within Islam, there's this idea of fitra, right? Now, mm -hmm. fitra um, is, can be loosely translated as a natural calling or mm. inclination, mm. a natural inclination. Yeah. And the Islamic belief is that every individual Every individual, every soul um, has a natural inclination to recognize God. Yeah. Right? Yeah. To recognize God. And, th and, and that is, you know, that's uh, a kind of an unbreakable kind of calling for the, for the individual. Yeah. Right? And, and so that being the case, you know, from, from the moment the soul, is breathed into um, into into the child, mm. uh, which interestingly, Islamically, is considered to be 120, a, 120 days after uh, conception, mm. right? Which 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 has interesting implications for abortion, which is a previous episode anyway. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, so 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 therefore, from that moment onwards, um, everything essentially we do is is towards a higher calling. Yeah, um, and. And essentially, some individuals respond to to that higher calling, and and spend a lifetime essentially searching for it or honing it or strengthening it, um, and others don't. Others, yeah. but so so that's 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 the kind of Islamic perspective on it. That mm. yes, every individual does have this yeah. within themselves. Therefore. It's it's interesting to hear you talk about um, you know the fact that there are you know like seventy percent or whatever of people you know um, are out there just basically um, living their living their day to day lives without without this idea of like mm. why we're we here what are we meant to do yep. um, you know how can I how can I live 
uh, a better quote-unquote life, a more yeah. contented life? How can I ask myself better questions? Uh, it's actually, I guess when you said that, it's a, it was a little bit kind of unsettling, you know, mm. to think that, you know, as I look outside of my window now mm. onto my little Yorkshire town, um, you know, that a lot of a lot of the people that I'm looking at have a very different experience of the world. Yeah. To me, you know, that's just, that's, you know, you, you like to believe that everyone walking around has a relatively similar yep. kind of experience because yep. you can only judge by what, how you've lived and how you yeah. see the world. But actually to think that somebody else is, I mean, not quite an alien, but yeah. they, they're just living very, very honestly. Well, it, it's just very interesting. Like recently, I mean, this, this is, I guess, something separately, you know, I've been really giving some thought to, you know, the development of a, a liberal democracy. Right. And how a liberal democracy essentially, you know, uh, established itself in order to end kind of the, the years and years and years of intercommunal violence um, mm. and to, to, to establish a way of living where people of different beliefs um, essentially could live together mm. whilst tolerating their differences. And to a large extent, it's been relatively successful as well. Um, and so thinking about that, thinking about what you're saying about, look, there are people who just walk around. They don't have your experience of mm. the world. Yeah, that's that's quite eye opening. Actually, mm. I've, I've never really thought about I've, th I've thought about people having different beliefs, i.e., you know, atheists and Christians and Jews mm. and Buddhists and mm. yeah, except and everything else. But I've never really thought about somebody who actually doesn't even think about that. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't even think about what they do believe they just basically just crack on so so you 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 talked about islam well two things one is i'm um i'm also as well as starting a phd in september i'm starting ministry training so i'm going to train to be a minister from october um but it's an interfaith minister so i will learn about the the major religions so that I can officiate at weddings, funerals, baby blessings, and things like that, um, because I'm I'm really interested in in um, becoming more aware of how other people might be perceiving the world through the lens of their faith, their religion, their paradigm, their belief system. But uh, but but another thing that I wanted to say was, and yeah, I'll, I'll I'll kind of say it lightly. I don't know if you've ever heard of the kind of Hindu story hindus call it the divine play and eric Byrne, going back to transaction analysis he wrote a book called what do you say after you say hello and another one called games people play because he says after hello then we're in a game whether that's a pastime in game whether that's an intimacy game whether whatever it is we're in a game we're playing roles and it's not like game as in psychological manipulative games just we're playing roles in life if i go to a shop and I, you know, give a pound over and I get a loaf of bread. I'm I'm playing the role of customer and the person behind the counter is the shopkeeper. Um, and if we play those roles in harmony, then everything's great. If I decide not to pay for that bread, I move from being the customer to being the thief. It's still another role that I'm playing. So I love the connection and I will be exploring it more as I go through my PhD and my um, ministry training of um, Eric Burns' games and also the, the Hindu um, belief of we are in a divine play. So all those people that are walking around the planet 
unaware that they're unaware, um, one could say is they are playing the game of life. So in the in the Leela story, and I won't quote it, you know, um, uh, exactly. I need to do more study of it. But my understanding of it is that for millions of years there was, or not even years, because years didn't exist. But all there was was bliss, and bliss wanted to experience something other than itself. And that's how, you know, kind of human beings or mankind was created to experience something other than bliss. So that thing that you talk about in Islam, about people having that calling, for me, that connects with it's, 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 it's love, it's God, it's the universe where everybody came from. And the divine play is that we come onto the planet, we incarnate onto the planet and we forget where we've come from but there's lots of clues to guide us back so it's a, it's a big game it's a big game that we're playing and 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 i love the way it's it's kind of defined in the hindu story there's a great game and i i i liken it to a playstation game i remember when i first i don't don't play playstation but when i used to play games years ago i played prince of persia and the thing with Prince of Persia is you're tapping on the keyboard. We're, we're going back to IBM computers here, tapping on the keyboard. And you'd be trying to find, like, where was there a little clue to get me to the next level? What kind of panel did I have to, to, to tap on or, or break through? Or you know, what room did I have to go through? There were clues everywhere, but the job was to find them. And that's how I kind of experienced the Leela story. It's like or that calling that you talked about is that we, 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 we're all able to go back to love. We're all able to go back to divinity, to the divine, to God, to whoever, whatever it is that, you know, people's beliefs are. And we've got to find the clues. We've got to find the clues and find the ways. And some people don't want to play that game. They want to play the game of the human being and they're happy playing the game of the human being. Like um, they want to get married, they want to get a house, they want to get a you know nice car, they want to travel, and they'll they'll move towards retirement and then die without ever thinking about. Hang on, maybe there's some more here for me to to get from my experience here on the planet. You know, um, going back again to to the time that I was that I was married, um, we mm. we attempted to to address problems. Mm. Um, that's I guess that's. You know, looking back, I, you know, I, I do think that we did everything possible um, with what we had at the time yep. in order to to try and resolve our differences. We we went to relate counselling. Mm. Um, we did that on two separate occasions, uh, once towards the beginning, once towards the end. Um, when I say once, as in a, a period. Um, and we also engage with Elias Kamani, who has appeared on this podcast uh, a number of times. And, and I guess he was, he was, I would, I would describe him as the, the intimate uh, therapist in that he really was able to get up close and personal with both of us. And the question that I have for you of somebody who clearly feels very passionate about people and mm. their lives and actually trying to be as, I guess, representative or have the possibility of connecting with as many people from different beliefs as possible. The question that arises in my mind is, you know, when you 
when you go about or when an, if an individual or a couple decide that they do want to engage with a therapist, mm. it would seem common sense that you try and engage with somebody who obviously that you trust. But a lot of the time that trust is is based upon whether or not the person you're talking to gets you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That they, you know, the greater the empathy between that, that you believe that that therapist has mm -hmm. for you and your situation, uh, the greater the trust is going to be. And hence, I guess, you know, the conventional wisdom is that the greater the possibility of, of getting what you need from that relationship. So I'm just curious as to, to somebody who is actually not pinning their colors to a particular mask, mm. right? You know, how, firstly, do you believe that? Do you believe that it is better to to have a therapist who 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 you believe has greater empathy for your situation and is mo most likely from your belief background? Um, and if you believe that, um, how does your your approach fit into this? As in, kind of being a broad church, uh, for want of a better phrase. Well. Um... I don't necessarily believe it or disbelieve it. Um, a teacher once told me, so when I did shamanic studies, a teacher once told me, it's interesting now, actually, I'm thinking this as you, as you asked me the question, Imran. So a teacher once told me that um, you, you'll always be ready for whoever comes to you. Um, and something happened whereby I, I planned a retreat in the UK um, and it was for people 25 and under living with HIV and it was way back in the 90s and what was going to happen was I was going to have different guest speakers on this four-day retreat and then my teacher was coming over from Seattle to do the last day um, and then slowly one by one each of them cancelled and there I was, and then even my teacher cancelled. We're supposed to be over in the UK doing a course and was going to come and do the last day of our course. And I, and I rang them, my Native American teacher, um, and they said, you're obviously ready. You're obviously ready. You run the course. And then I ran that course and started a charity and we run courses for a number of years. Um, so, so I have that belief that, you know, we will draw to us people that we are ready for however just listening to your question and reflecting on your question if people don't have that belief then all sorts of other stuff could be going on out there in the world does that make sense so for, for me i know that anyone who comes to me there's a reason for them coming to me and well, i know I, I i believe it's one of my beliefs that they've come to me for a reason we're sitting in the room together for a reason or we're we're wherever we are for a reason um, and I like to be the detective then in exploring that. Um, and the second answer is around, well, I wanted to share that um, I was working with a couple and the couple were both from the same religious background and they were having a lot of conflict. And they came to me before getting married because they were having a lot of conflict. And there, were a lot of, there was a lot of arguments going on. And where I got to with them, although we come from different um, kind of backgrounds, different cultures, was talking about culture, was talking about the cultural impact on their relationship, the cultural dynamic. Because, and where they got to was they weren't necessarily arguing about 
anything that was going on between them. They were arguing about the 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 you know the male of the relationship being really um, putting the needs of the mother before the needs of the fiance, but then talking about that culturally rather than this is what I'm doing as a personality. Actually, this is what happens in my culture. So what am I going to do about that, and how are we going to work with that? You know, um. And it was really eye-opening them for them to see that actually if we get down to the core, what is it you two have got between you? And what they've got between them is, is love. They love one another. And the way their environment is impacting them or their culture is impacting them is having a detrimental effect on the relationship. That's really interesting. That's really so almost so almost that there's 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 an advantage to having somebody who is not in the woods looking yeah. at the trees, yeah. right? So yeah. somebody outside who's able to provide kind of a more objective perspective. I get that. I'm just thinking personally at the time, and even now perhaps, you know, that if I'm going through a particular issue, because my my belief uh, structure framework is, in my view, so particular, yeah. right? It's 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 very difficult for me to, to talk to somebody um, not on an intellectual level, but just mm. more, I, I guess, on a deeper level and, and have maybe the vulnerability mm. that's needed in order to just submit to the process mm. um, and take really take on board what somebody is telling me. Yeah. Like, so, for example, you know, you're a Muslim, right? I'm a Muslim. I live my life according to certain ideals and certain beliefs. Yeah. And so whilst... Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is the first time we've spoken, but whilst I'll be able to talk to you and definitely connect with you on a whole series of areas, mm. in order to be impacted by your therapist, I think the relationship needs to be deeper. And as such, I think a lot of people, a lot of, not just from a Muslim background, but a lot of people, whilst they're able to, to engage on an intellectual level, they're not really able to kind of reach that area of vulnerability that's needed in order to uh, to enable a therapist to do to do their work and if that's the case and this is just an opinion if that's mm -hmm. the case then the lack of therapists mm. and this comes back to your your phd right mm. so the lack of therapists within communities of color right mm. specific, specifically is going to basically hamper the possibilities of those communities moving forwards, mm -hmm. um, and um, and and I think that's really important as 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 an argument or as something to address because it's one of the reasons I started the podcast is to enable people to at least start having healthy conversations yeah. around subjects which potentially not just affect them but affect generations yeah. to come. Right. Yeah. So so. When it comes to your work, yep. uh, I appreciate where you're coming from and yep. your intentions behind it. But you, do you sense that it's difficult sometimes to get to that point of vulnerability that's potentially needed to do your work uh, in its kind of best form? Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree with you. And um, what I was noticing when you were speaking was... And what I find with trainee therapists is there's sometimes a projection onto us as therapists that we, we've got the answers and we, we know what to do and we can fix people. I don't come from that way of thinking when I'm working with people. And unfortunately, 
therapists fall into that trap as well. I say trap, that's a kind of a bit of a loaded word, but I, I, I'm going to leave it a trap for now. Um, because I, I come from a place of um, helping or, or yeah, supporting people and navigate their own experience. So it's it's not for me to know your your background your culture your religion it's great for me to you know have that as a context but then it's for me to help you make sense of how you make sense of your background your experience your culture so not not being like a a, a guide or uh you know or a or um or a teller i don't tell people what to do but more a facilitator and there's not a lot of therapists out there that, that work in that way. But there also are quite a few therapists that do work in that way. Um, and some people want that. So the, the whole thing about therapy is, um, or, or a way of looking at therapy, is people come into the room and we are meant to help them look for what it is they want to, to change or what it is they want to do with the therapy process that's what we're meant to do you know someone can come into the room and sit down and tell me a bit of their background and their history and I can work out very quickly oh that's the reason why I'm a, but I say that, that that's kind of grandiose to say that but you know I can hypothesize actually it's 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 pretty um um, it's, it's more than likely going to be that your, you know, that your mother left, that you have this kind of dynamic with women, but it could take two years for the person to get there themselves, because it would be too simple to say, um, yeah, the reason that you don't attach to women is because your mother left. Okay, great. End of session. You know, there's a, there's a comedy <laughs> sketch. There's a comedy sketch on Saturday Night Live, whereby, um, the the guy says i only charge i only charge like five dollars or a dollar a minute or something like that and i only take i don't give any change from five dollars and 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 i you know i give advice and when we're done we're done and um the woman says um every time i do such and such and such and such this happens and he goes okay well i'm i'm, I'm ready to tell you what to do are you ready and she's like do i need a pen he's like no you won't need to write this down most people remember it stop it Okay, great. <laughs> it's, it's a brilliant sketch, you know. And she says, she says, she, she it's only taken three minutes, so she gives five dollars. He goes, I don't give any change. And she says, Well, I'll have, I'll have the next two minutes then, please. And he, she goes, Okay then. He goes, Okay then. What, what do you want to talk about for two minutes? And she says um, something along the lines of, I have this fear of being buried in a box. And he says, Stop it. <laughs> And he says, we're done again, we're done again. And it's it, in its simplicity, it's like, if only we could, if only we could stop going into those dis dysfunctional relationships, or if only we could go stop doing those things that are causing us harm and suffering. But we can't, we have to find a way to make sense of our experience, find out how, how we got to be doing what we, we are doing, and then unpick that. And for me, that's, that's, that's the role of therapy. But not everybody wants to do that. I have this I have this theory that the vast majority of people um, do not, even though they know that they would like to um, and mm. need to mm. affect some form of 
change in their lives yeah. that they choose not to in order to maintain the status quo, even if that's to their own detriment. And life has a way of giving, giving you the opportunities to affect that, that change. And those opportunities come in the form of adverse experiences. I don't mean adverse childhood experiences. I simply mean that we have, we just come across difficulties. I always say that I, I ask God for wisdom, right? And he gives me problems, right? Mm. Because it's through struggling with those problems, right? That I attain wisdom. It's simply not something that's gifted to you. Mm. So do you, do you also agree that the vast majority of us in this world kind of almost need um, very, very difficult experiences in our lives in order to, to be able to look at ourselves squarely in the mirror and make an honest assessment uh, and, and move forwards? Well, you, you'd, you're, you're talking about people that have re reflective capacity. So not everybody has reflective capacity. So, so it would take someone with reflective capacity and someone who has a commitment to reflect on their experience and their process to say, okay, let me see that I asked for this experience. God gave me this experience and I got it that way rather than the way that I thought that I would. That actually takes a lot of thinking, a lot of reflection. People would normally, would generally say, I asked God for this and this happened. There is no God or, you know, why have you forsaken me? Or they don't necessarily have the capacity or not the capacity, they have the capacity, but they don't have the practice of reflecting on their experience in that way. No, I... Well, yeah, so, so, sorry, just, just on that. Yeah, yeah I, I hear what you're saying. I'm also thinking that, you know, I, I think back to, to my divorce now, it's been over 10 years. Yeah. And I'm glad it happened. Mm. Right? It's actually looking, and it's always interesting looking back at something and realizing, and I'm sure many of us can do this. We look back in line and say, at that moment in time, it was mm. the worst thing that could have happened. Mm. But what has happened since, and that event was a key part of what followed, mm. actually was a catalyst towards becoming, for me, uh, becoming a better parent, mm. a better mm. friend, a better son, mm. a better citizen, right? Mm. Whatever, you know, however somebody wants to term the word better, I'm just talking about from my own personal perspective. Mm. And so um, I would, are these, are these really difficult moments in our lives? Are there, are they opportunities? Do you think? Are they opportunities to, to be better? Is mm. the, is the framing of that important rather than seeing them that, as immediate catastrophes so if you're looking for an answer the answer is yes but... <laughs> i know you don't like giving answers but, but i've got you to say yes so that's great so yes i see everything as an opportunity everything you know difficult things that happen to us great things that happen to us you know everything's an opportunity um but that's 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 it's a particular way of living in the world, Imran. It's not, you know, it's it it's it's not. If just to say everything's an opportunity doesn't mean everybody's going to get that. Do you know what I mean? 
because mm. people will start saying, well, what about this and what about that? And so it, it would take time to say, well, how could you then use that as an opportunity? You know, how could you see benefit from that? I had um, I, I had a homeless guy. I took a homeless guy in for a couple of months during the first lockdown. And it was interesting talking about sending out to, you know, God, the universe or whoever. Um I mean, I'm saying that lightly now, but I hope you realize I have quite a big sp spiritual perspective when I say the whoever. So yes, I put it out. I, to, I, I get that, Will. <laughs> I put it out to the universe to say, should I do some emergency foster care because I used to foster or should I get a puppy? You know, that was literally <laughs> a, a month into lockdown. And then this homeless guy ended up crossing my path and I took him in and he stayed with me for a couple of months and it was just like having he was 36 years of age but it was like having a foster teenager but it was also like having a puppy because whenever i let him off the leech he'd be back at king's cross jacking up you know <laughs> his drug, drugs and things like that so right. i i got i got what i wanted and i got it in a completely different form and it was it was an amazing experience but it takes being willing to look at life that way you know thing I like about doing this podcast series is yes of course you get to speak to some really interesting people but you learn so much in the process and I guess my main takeaway from my discussion with Will is this idea of the script from the field of transactional analysis and that we all have a script but it doesn't determine our lives if we can become aware of it if we can know what it says if we're prepared to challenge it and we're prepared to put in the time and the effort to understand how to do that if you do have any questions suggestions or queries please do contact me at divorcemuslimdad at gmail.com or hit me up on instagram or twitter at m-o-i-a-z-a-m i absolutely love hearing from you so please don't be shy do get in touch i do respond to to everybody's uh, messages thanks for listening See you next time. Inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.